0: Everybody, welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin of the Beyond the Peloton lo- newsletter here with Andrew Vontz of the Choose the Hardway podcast. And this is another special share episode. Our guest today is Cameron Mason, the 22-year-old cyclocross monster, um, probably known as the best cross racer in the world who's not Wout Van Aert or Matthew Vanderpoel or Tom Pickcock. So pretty pretty high praise. We're just going to grill him about why he's not racing the Tour de France here, why he's <laughs> this year, why he's not on the world tour. But Cameron, it's great to have you on. And where, where where does this find you? Where are you right now?
1: Oh, thank you for having me. No, I'm in uh, Scotland at the moment in my hometown of Linlithgow, which is just near Edinburgh. And yeah, on an easy day today. So just recovering feet up, uh, chatting on the podcast.
2: I also just quickly wanted to say for anybody who's listening, if you want to hear part one of this interview, go over to Choose the Hard Way. You can find Choose the Hard Way wherever you listen and at Choose the hardway.com. We've got a deep dive With Cameron, kind of a behind the music on him as a human being, his history as an artist, a creative. His videos are pretty amazing if you haven't checked them out. He's got a deep catalog on YouTube and we talk about how he ended up on the Trinity Racing Squad from his beginnings. Racing starting uh, in the under eight mountain bike league in Scotland. So pretty incredible rise. Andrew is like a, a major fan of your video work. Has been following you for years. I'm
0: I was not familiar with this work. So just this winter, I'm looking at results from cross races, and I'm I'm just asking Andrew, who the heck is Cameron Mason? Like because there's this race, Ozen um, Cross Linhuid, the C1 race where Benart wins, Vanderpool gets second, Picock's third. It's kind of this thrilling three up sprint. And then there's this Cameron Mason kid and fourth. And I look you up, 22 years old. I'm like. This guy is amazing you know you're crushing like really good belgian you know and dutch cyclocross racers who aren't those three and then andrew had to introduce me to your video work and explain who you are you're on trinity racing currently which is is that was that team started by tom pickock or was he just on that team
1: yeah so it was it was actually it was him and his manager's d- uh, decision to start a team to support his racing um, and then since then it's kind of developed so trinity is the kind of sports management company um so it's owned by a management company and the idea is that yeah you know if you can develop riders onto factory mountain bike teams and onto world tour road teams then then they can obviously get kicked back from that as an agency um but it's a it's a development setup so yeah multi-discipline um multinational as well
2: a little similar to but also different from the united states this is almost like a privateer program that Pidcock set up. The difference from some of the privateer programs in the United States, of course, is he went on to go to the World Tour and race in the Tour de France and win Alpe d'Huez. But Cameron, can you talk a little bit about where do you see yourself at right now in the trajectory of your career and where are we headed? As Spencer mentioned, we've had a lot of conversations on Beyond the Peloton and just privately about when's Cameron going to the World Tour? Oh no, that's big praise there. But I think,
1: yeah, the world tour side of things, it's yeah, it's a question that gets brought up a bit more now. And I think, especially when fans and when like followers of the sport can see such a direct link between riders who win road races and riders who win cyclocross races, then you know they're wondering why that direct link is not also there at lower levels. And yeah, I, that's where I would describe myself is at that kind of mid tier of of high level racers um but yeah there's there's a big difference between being kind of mid-tier top tier in one discipline to then being able to do that totally all over again in another discipline like the level needed to just be at one level at a high level in just one discipline is is huge and it's not twice as hard to be good in another one it's like three four or five times as hard the, the magnitudes are even greater and um just being high level at one discipline, like the amount of respect and just admiration I have for the guys like Van Der Poel, Van Aert, Pidcock, um, Mariana Voss, uh, Evie Richards, like all these riders who are doing it across discipline, different disciplines is just massive because yeah, everything that you think is harder at one discipline is then just magnified for, for multiple. So I'm, I'd say I'm in that part of my career where I'm working out how I would approach that. You know, I'm working out, how the balance between disciplines work and what I can bring to the table. It's a bit differently. What maybe what I, the things the look the like low hanging fruit still, I think that's, that's there possible. Um, so yeah, just working that out in, in this part of my career, but I'd say I'm like, yeah, 80 to 90% fully formed as a bike rider. There's still that kind of top tier that's maybe untapped, you know, there's maybe a, part within me that is going to be an insane stage racer that i just haven't had the time or the right you know the right um environment to to find yet um but there there aren't really any questions around my saddle possibility there's not really many questions around my off-road ability but there there is that little bit of a question mark around road um which is exciting for me and it's exciting for people who are following me as well um but it's just finding the right time and the right place to 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 go into that
0: Well, I'm glad I was present for the conversation on Andrew's podcast because I think if, you know, I just got to know you as like a very thoughtful person who takes things step by step and who's never really rushed into the sport or like held yourself to super high expectations and just has let the results come to you. So it makes more sense having heard that. But back in January after Worlds, I think we were talking in this podcast, I was like, oh, Cameron Mason probably will be on a world tour team by the Spring Classics. Like there's a secret (laughs) deal underway. They just haven't told us. Hmm. but." Now that I've gotten to know you, I I can understand that you're probably more at home, like spiritually on the mountain bike side. Is that, you think that's correct characterization?
1: Yeah, I think yeah. in a parallel universe, like I would have done all of my development on a road bike and I would have done a load of road races by now. And then I also would have been great at South and then I would get on a world tour team. But it just happens that I've taken a much more off-road route. And through taking that off-road route, you know, I've, I have 100% missed out on development. I've not done the UCI junior races. I've not done the UCI races through kind of U23 level. And yeah, that puts me at a disadvantage, definitely. Like it doesn't count me out of, of being a good road rider and being a kind of world tour potential. But I am just that quite a few steps behind maybe some of my peers at that level, I think. But yeah, the, the my start across level is not really negotiable. Like big teams can see that. Um, but what they can't see is how that how that translates onto the road. So yeah, if if I wanted to show that off, I would need to go somewhere and and show it.
2: Cameron, let's go a little bit deeper on where you're at in cyclocross and the past season in particular. Just massive breakout season for you. It seems like the past couple of years, of course, there have been Woot and Matthew. Then there's everyone else, Elias, a bit had a great beginning of the season this year, yep. and then he really wasn't on the level with uh, Wood and Matthew. We also have Lars Vanderhaar kind of around the same level as Ellie. And then other than that, it's there hasn't been a lot of upward progression within the ranks of cyclocross racers in terms of riders getting up to that Ellie-Lars level. You are there now, and we just haven't seen a lot of riders, particularly those from outside of mainland Europe, other than Tom Pidcock, of yeah. course, step in and make this giant leap to be able to compete with the very, very best riders in the sport. What happened for you this year that enabled you to make this giant leap? So few others have within the past decade, really. Um, uh, it's a tricky one for me
1: to answer because I didn't, you know, I, I didn't go out of my way to do anything specific you know i've came into a start of season just as i did before you know i want to level up i want to be better than i was last year but just yeah just multiple things that kind of come into it like i had a very busy mountain bike season last year so i started the year with cape epic in um in march i raced the cape epic i then did a full world cup season uh, that brought me all the way to september and by the time i did get to september i was pretty on my limit um the August of the year before, which was 2021, I just returned from a elbow injury, um, where I couldn't ride or race for like six months. And I'd spent so long away from doing the thing. I really loved that when I did get back to racing and riding on a bike, I basically just didn't stop for 12 months and I did a full cross season and I'd ended the biggest mountain bike season of my life. And I got to September last year and went. I'm actually in quite a big hole, like I've physically and mentally gone very deep and i need to work out how to get out of that you know in in september last year i was planning right you know where am i going to start my cross season cool we'll go over to belgium in october do a couple of blocks get ready for christmas all that and then i realized quite quickly that my level just i i did not have the kind of mental and physical uh, energy to go about doing that so I, it, t- it took quite a lot but i decided to be like right i'm gonna put hold to all of that I'm going to have a proper off-season, I'm going to not ride a bike, I'm not, not going to train for three or four weeks, and then I'm going to do a steady and consistent build back up towards saddlecross starting in December. And that you know, fresh slate was really important, um, went really back to basics, built in loads of like really good fundamental strength. I spent more time in the gym than I'd ever spent uh, before, which was massive. I spent more time just doing quality training. You know, when you when you don't set a racing target for yourself for two months, there's quite a lot you can do with that. Um, and that's all I needed. I needed two months of good training, and then I arrived in December in the best shape I'd ever been in and the most mentally fresh that I'd ever been in. And I was coming into the Christmas period, which is the busiest period in Crush racing. There's, there's a race almost every day for, for two weeks in between Christmas and New Year. And... I was the freshest out of everyone on the start line. I was the best physically prepared on the start line. And I still had all my skills that I'd already, that I'd been learning of the last three, four years. I had all this potential. Um, and then I was just able to, to go and do it and, and start kind of bagging results.
0: And can you tell us about Trinity racing? So when you're, so after this great cross season, like yeah. what, what are you doing now? Are you gearing up for mountain bike season? Like, is that what you're doing this summer? Just top level mountain bike racing?
1: Yeah, so this summer it's still multidiscipline. So the main goals are top level mountain bike racing, so that's World Cups. Also the gravel World Series, UCI World Series. That's kind of a kind of a secondary goal, uh, but definitely definitely up there. You know, like this new gravel World Series. It's it's UCI kind of. Um, recognize now uh there's loads of these new events popping up so that's something that i'm super interested in it's something that specialised trinity's main sponsor is super interested in and they want me as a kind of european representative like i think they have u.s gravel pretty sorted from a brand point of view and from a specialized point of view but the having someone like me in europe racing these high level races that's kind of part of their plan which i'm super stoked for Um, and then the road is also there a little bit as a kind of a third third goal, um, when, and if it works around the mountain bike and the gravel, then, then I should be there at some, at some top road races as well.
2: Cameron, there's a pretty massive time trial subculture in the UK generally yeah. and in Scotland. Is that a thing? Or um, not?
1: yeah, it is, it is actually more of an English thing. Um, like the aero, the money, all of that, like it's, it's kind of Midlands, South England, that type of thing. Uh, it does come a little bit north sometimes, but I'd say the ro- mainly that just shows that the road side of things in Scotland, road scene is is not so strong in Scotland. It's it's, it's a lot more off road based. You know, like a saddle cross race and a mountain bike race will have hundreds of people, but road you're kind of struggling. There's 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 lots more barriers into putting on a road race in Scotland than there are putting on an off-road race. So there's the road closures, there's the public, there's the police, there's the local councils. Whereas generally off-road races like mountain bike and salt cross, they're pretty well received. So that's, yeah, that's a pretty big aspect to, to that. And then the market as well, just like the, in England, with it being so much more densely populated, you can put on a road, lots of road races, in lots of different towns whereas in scotland most of the people just live in one area just in the center um but then there's still people spread out around the whole country so people end up having to travel further um whereas with an off-road season you can you can go a little bit further and still get lots of people um just yeah just the way things are but i i had a lot more of an off-road kind of development in scotland
0: so specialize your team's main financial backer and then you know, not to pry too much, but like what level of support are are you getting currently from the team?
1: Yeah, so the team generally, as a development team, don't have riders on salary. Um, Some riders have their own level of support, um, but it is a development team. You know, the idea is to get riders onto bigger teams. You know, they're they're now, um, from a mountain bike point of view, Trinity are kind of like, specialized factory racing teams development team um so something that specialized really wanted to do was in road there's really clear pathways right you know there's almost all big world teams have development teams those development teams sometimes even have junior teams whereas in mountain bike you could have a rider who wins at junior and u23 level but there is nothing really to stop them then going off to any high level team whereas what specialized wanted to do and cannondale are trying to do it trek are trying to do it, all the top brands are trying to trying to get in these pathways where you can pick up riders at a little bit younger age help develop them and then because you've helped develop them they're more likely to then stick with the brand and to turn into your your high level racer so people like maybe riley amos in in um in the us who rides for trek Factory racing now you know he came through i think it was uh that kind of durango boulder teams with i think big bear and they're really quite linked into trek now um, so that's one example. Whereas Trinity, you know, they're they're trying to get riders at younger age who then then World Cup potential, and then get them onto a high level team. And that happens with the road as well. So um, yeah, the idea is that you're not on Trinity for very long. Um, I'm I've been on Trinity the longest for one reason or another. You know, COVID had an impact on that. Um, dis, multi-discipline racing has an impact on that. I think if I was all in for road, I would have by now either made it or not made it. Um, whereas there's this kind of gray area in, in off-road racing where you can still make it as a bike rider, but not be, you know, that full top rider. So I'm just, uh, trying to work out where, where that place is, is for me in, in the sport.
2: Cameron, you had mentioned your strength training being, a being an important part of your preparation for this season and really getting in some quality strength work for anybody who's been a fan of yours and has followed your work as a creator, you've had string training as a component of how you prepare for racing for a very long time i'm wondering if what you're doing now is any different than what people may have seen in your earlier videos has that evolved at all and is that something that you're continuing throughout the competitive season or do you dial it back once you get into the actual competition phase
1: yeah like i've, I've always had people around me and and support networks that have valued the the strength training, but me personally I've been very good at like sidelining it and not treating it as a priority. Um, And what has changed is I think yeah, through my elbow injury I one of the things I came back from stronger was the strength side of things. So that was something I learned from it that um with all this extra time and all this extra resources I had by being injured, I, I then went and did my strength training better than I'd ever done before and I actually started to see benefits. Um, before I'd always, you know, it'd been just a, a side thing, you know, I'll, I'll go and do my intervals really well, but if I can't do the gym session, then that doesn't really matter. I've changed my mindset around that a lot, really realizing that, you know, there is no reason why your gym session can't be just as valuable as your on-the-bike session. Um, and that's only because I started to get those kind of positive feedback loops of like, right, you put in the work, you get it back. Um, and i'd never committed to it enough that i would anything get anything back um so i'm now yeah a bit more of a convert and as i say around trying to keep it going that is the really hard part is you know when you're in competition and you're in these kind of heavy periods the idea of doing one extra session that that can be quite heavy for an athlete but i try to have more of an attitude that it's not one extra session it's one necessary se- session you know it's it's part of your week it's something that's necessary and getting you to the weekend race in the best place possible so now like a race week would be well in a normal training week i would try and do three gym sessions so tuesday standard gym session uh, thursday a more explosive gym session and then saturday another standard gym session and then in race week that gets brought back to just one session where i do just the thursday session which is the explosive session and that's all I need to then get ready for a race weekend. And that's something i would not done before uh, before last season.
2: And Cameron, is this pretty foundational strength work? Because if anyone has delved into the space and gone to find resources, I feel like the first thing they typically see is either the Nino Schurter videos or the Kate <laughs> Courtney videos where it's, Somebody with the trainer, they've got 25 different implements. Yeah. They're holding on to a band while a trainer is trying to yank them off their bike. Handle,
1: hand, they've got handlebars there. They've yeah. got something attached to them. Yeah,
2: Trainers punching yeah, so them in the face you,
0: as they hold on to the
2: handlebars. its I mean, seriously, those videos are just, they're like two steps short of the Rocky training montage yeah. in Siberia. And, and uh, I think that's Rocky 2, perhaps. Oh, but, Rocky uh, 4. When he faces Drago. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. Rocky 4 facing Drago uh for you cameron is it fancy have you welded uh handlebars onto a wobble board or is it pretty basic stuff
1: yeah it's not it's not so fancy like the stage i am at in my development like i'm I, there's a lot to be gained from just doing the basics really well um and that's the, kind of the place i'm in right now um yeah it's it's a tricky one like but yeah it's it's The thing I find with gym is that it's such a massive topic, you know, like with cycling it is also a massive topic in that, like, there's so much different evidence, there's so much different research about what training intervals work and what doesn't work. But once you're actually down to the fundamentals of it, you know, if you go out and you ride hard enough and you rest hard enough, then you're going to get better at cycling. When I walk into a gym and I see all the different influence and I have a gym coach explain to me, well, actually, we can do that squat in five different ways and we could do it three reps, but then we could also do it eight reps in my head I'm just thinking well which one is it you know which one is actually going to make me better on a bike and I've had to work with my support crew and with my strength conditioning coaches to get it to a place where I don't actually need all the information in the world as long as we're doing whatever we're doing we're we're trusting it and we're doing it in the best way possible and we're just committing to that then that's how I've found I've actually made improvements and that's what I do on the bike as well you know there are there are 10 different ways that you could approach training whether it's polarized whether it's you know going into sweet spot whether it's going into vo2 um you just got to choose a way that you know works for you and then kind of stick to it and stick to your guns because if you're just constantly second guessing yourself second guessing the next bit of research that comes along you know you have to be open to that all and, and vigilant but if you're if you're if you're never doing anything really well then you're just not gonna you're not gonna
0: And are you going, do you have like a state-of-the-art gym in your house? You've retrofitted the house or do you just go to like a local gym?
1: I wish, but I'm very lucky that my coach, James McCallum, has, uh, he's created a gym next to his house, uh, kind of in an outbuilding. Um, So I get to go there and it's basically like having a private gym, which is super good. And then I do one of my sessions a week at the Scottish Institute of Sport, which is at Heriot-Watt University uh, near Edinburgh. And that's just a amazing performance wing. You know, it's got all the equipment. It's pretty much a private session. And that's support I get through the Institute of Sport in Scotland um, as an athlete. So I'm super grateful for that as well.
0: And do they financially support you? Like, is Scotland one of these countries that if they feel like they have someone capable of, like, winning the Commonwealth Games, that they'll put money behind you?
1: So the Scottish Cycling support is based around so they have they have money and support for kind of commonwealth games potential like you say um but their most of their kind of energy is put into getting riders onto a british cycling um performance program so they are seen as kind of like a stepping stone like if scotland was to be independent then obviously they'd have their own agenda their own targets but with them being part of british cycling that's that's kind of their goal is to is to help you get onto British cycling and I've my kind of situation like with British cycling, I don't really there's not really a place for me within their within their system, you know. Um if I was a little bit uh, there's no set setup for example, like that's something that would serve me. Um where I am with mountain bike and with road there's not something that would serve me. Um as I get better at mountain bike there's probably a place within their Olympic development program for me. Um but what i do get through scottish cycling is is you know i get psych psychology support um nutritional support medical support and strength conditioning support which is just as an athlete to have that in your home base is is huge so most uh, most high level athletes in scotland do get that in other sports as well
2: cameron slightly different topic but training related ever since it became public that primos roglic is running in the morning Uh, including during the Tour de France, it actually seems like this has really taken off. I'm talking to a number of elite and professional level cyclists, trainers, coaches, who seem to have now adopted this practice of, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go for a fasted run or jog in the morning. Spencer and I have been talking about whether people are perhaps doing this for body composition weight management reasons because it's of course a very inefficient thing generally for a cyclist to do there's also an argument to be made that just for bone health which is a big issue for cyclists generally it not being a weight-bearing exercise there's utility there you of course run as part of your cyclocross training but anecdotally do you see any benefit to running during the competition period for other disciplines and is that something that you do
1: yeah, I mean, it's not something, to be honest, I didn't do any run tra- running training for my cyclocross season, which was a mistake. It didn't make a massive difference, but it was a mistake, and it's something I will do more of in the future. Like, one of, my, one of the holes in my game was definitely the running. I wasn't fast enough, and I wasn't efficient enough. So I will bring that into my next season, you know, just as we get closer to the season in August and September, just bringing back in some short runs. Um, in cross, it's there is, there's more of a speed aspect and a strength aspect but as you say from a from the metabolism and from the the kind of yeah body composition i'm i i'm not sure i can't really say much because at the end of the day it's just more it's more physical load isn't it it's just another activity like there are other ways of making your body work it just happens that running it's pretty easy to do before breakfast you don't have to get into lots of kit um it's yeah you can do it anywhere um And all the world to riders, they're good enough athletes that they can run fast enough anyway, you know? So it's like, they're already great athletes. So it doesn't, you shouldn't be surprised that someone like, wow, or, or Pidcock or Vanderpoel can also go and do a really fast 5k because they're some of the best athletes, 20 minute level athletes in the world. So it just, it doesn't matter whether they're running or whether they're cycling or whether they're, you know, if, if, if Vanderpoel learned how to do cross-country skiing, he could also probably do a really fast cross-country skiing race. Um,
2: that that may be a secret project that we just haven't heard about yet. We might. Yeah, be I've saying, just given it
1: away. He's yeah. actually doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: think there's like a speed skater. He's on the Yumbo
0: speed skating team. Yeah, I like, could
1: imagine Wout Van Aert on a on a speed skating rink. Yeah. Yeah, and he a, like wrote, he's like, speed. I
0: don't like speed skating. I was not, never did it, and I just did follow this 50 step plan and became the world's best speed skater. So maybe
2: Vanderpool and Wout could just follow that, and they'll be great. Yeah yeah he did all bike training is that true that speed skater yeah he did he published they published oh yeah i I know that he published a paper about it i don't know if it's actual peer-reviewed academic research but almost everything that he did it was just power-based training on the bike and then you're right he didn't like speed skating and then he would just get on the ice like one day a week and then he destroyed everyone in the world (laughs)
0: that is awesome and um cameron we've been debating we've there's a big topic over here at BTP headquarters. What's going on with the wax chains? Are you waxing your chain or are you just doing the lube?
1: I'm just, I mean, from an off-road side of things, I, I'm still to be convinced uh, with wax chains. Just the amount of grit and grime and constant bike washing that happens with mountain bikes, especially in Scotland. You know, like I am a professional bike washer at this time of the year, just as I am a cycle as a bike racer, like, Every single ride, it's full bike wash, degrease, everything, you know, because everything is just so gritty. But I'm hearing things even just within my local cycling community that a wax chain on a mountain bike, very low maintenance and high efficiency. Sometimes even there are more gains to be had on a mountain bike, apparently, than there are on a Mm. road bike because of the extra friction and lower speeds. I don't know. That's something I haven't gone into. But um, now we'll see. I think... In cyclocross, it will be pretty high maintenance. You know, you've got three or four bikes to look after with wax chains. And I don't know what the maintenance looks like with rewaxing and cleaning and stuff like that. But if there's mechanics out there and if there's teams out there that are, you know, there are teams out there that leave nothing unturned. So I'm sure they're already getting, they're looking into it. You know, like cyclocross riders who are supported by World Tour teams like Van der and Pidcock and Wabanat, there's no reason why they shouldn't be trying it, right?
0: It is funny how it might, yeah. I'm like not convinced. A lot of the data comes out of like the US, particularly Western US, which is very dry. I could imagine a wax chain would actually be really good. I do want to see more data on like if you're in Scotland every day and it's wet, like is it wearing out over the course of a single spring classic? Like that could, you know, if it's a 200 mile long shelf life and shrinks to 100 miles when it gets wet, that's not great for a road. But what's funny is, You you would think that they would make the best equipment decision to try to win the race, and then you have like Wout Van Aert switching gears in the middle of the season from Shimano to an inferior product in SRAM because his team wants that check. You know, it's it is funny how sometimes you feel like they make bad equipment decisions just for money or to save money or to make more money.
1: Yeah, and as well, even just on loop chains, like we saw Wout Van Aert during. I think it was e3 getting his chain lubed and you know like would that be a problem at all if he had a wax chain like even if there were no wattage advantages but if you even if you could arrive at the final of a 250k bike race with a chain that's not sounding disgusting because you haven't ridden through all the muddy cobbled puddles like he's getting a his chain lubed you know with 30k to go because it's that noisy and it's probably that inefficient um and you know there's, there's massive gaps and gains to be had in that probably and no, in in saddlecross we're dealing with, you know, multiple bike changes. Uh, the equipment, is, it can make a big difference. The difference between having two kilos of mud on your bike versus nothing at all, um, especially because we are um, accelerating and deceler decelerating so much. Um, like any weight makes such a big difference. You know, I've been on lucky enough to be on the, the specialized crux the last two years and it's pretty much the lightest cross bike you can have. And I just think it's, you know, why hasn't why haven't bike brands been able to do that quicker? Um, but the way in which it handles great, but is also so light in satellite cross makes such a big difference. We're going from five kilometres an hour up to thirty-five kilometres an hour multiple times in a lap. And the, the ability to have a light bike to do that all with has been really good. So um, then I think there's going to be an aero side of, of saddlecross that comes back as well, uh, as there are fast such fast races sometimes. You know, in, in, at the World Championships in Hoogerhide, we average 28 kilometers an hour with running. Um, so that basically means we're riding along the straights at, you know, 35 k's an hour. I'm, I'm using like a 44-tooth chain ring. while it's got, I think, a 46 or a 48-tooth chain ring. Um, there's loads of aero stuff to be had at those speeds, but then five days later, we could turn up a race like Havre when the average speed is 14 kilometers an hour. So the amazing thing in cross is that it swings so much. Um, so one equipment set up for one weekend might be great. And then it could just be terrible for the next weekend. So I'd be interested to see if uh, like these bigger teams that have lots of, of money and resources maybe do go down in that direction
2: cameron you've kind of answered my next question i think but i'm gonna ask it anyway because you're someone outside of races i'm guessing that you still have to work on your own bikes quite a bit is that correct
1: yeah with how much you have to ride them yeah you end up having to work on them
2: yeah so how do you feel about concealed cables on cyclocross bikes because i'm thinking for amateurs that have to work on their own bikes i guess if you're running e-tap you are running ETAP, you do not have to worry about that but i don't know if you're having to Bleed your hydraulic lines, potentially rerun them at some point during the season. Yeah. that's probably not going to be very fun. I mean, to counter your
1: your strong point, Spencer, is that Strom You cannot go wrong with the fact that there are no cables on your bike. Very I mean, good point. The, very good. The point. Unbelievable ease that comes with that as an off road rider and the unbelievable compatibility that you get, you know, like when I decide I want to ride more cogs at the rear in a saddle race. So instead of riding 33 at the back, I want to ride 36. I have a a mech change maybe i shorten the chain or lengthen the chain that is all you know there's no disconnection or reconnection that's that's massive uh but from maintenance point you know just the amount of brake pads and bearings we go through is is massive there's no solution to that but no i mean i don't break bikes enough to have to take apart kind of headsets and things like that so i'm i'm lucky in that respect
0: and is it, correct me if I'm wrong, there's like the world championships are in Scotland this year and they're yep. doing everything at once, right? Like mountain bike, road?
1: Everything apart from cyclocross and gravel. That's, that's what's happening in Scotland. So, you know, track, uh, BMX, trials, downhill, XC, road, time trial, uh, expressive cycling for like ballet on bikes, um, the cycling football, so yeah, it's it's crazy. It's going to be like an Olympic games but for cycling. Are you going to you know, say
0: again? Gonna, Are you going to do all those events including the Yeah, Olympics? yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the fact. No, no. Um that's is my main goal uh, is the mountain bike, so that will be the XCO. Um but I won't just do the XCO. I have there's a possibility I could do marathon short track e-bike and relay and XCO. Um, I think Christopher Blevins did four world championships in one week, one time. I he won three of them, I think something <laughs> ridiculous. Um, but that's just Christopher Blevins things. He's just insane high achiever, but, um, I will probably choose two to do really well, two or three to do really well of them.
0: And are you eligible for the U23 road champs?
1: Uh, I'm not U23 anymore. So that's that last year was my last year of U23. Um, But the road is, yeah, for for Worlds is a bit more of a stretch with with national selections and things like that. But, yeah, that's also happening in in Scotland.
2: Cameron, question about data management, training, and racing. In cyclocross, everybody's running a watch, and because you're switching bikes, I'm assuming that you can't run multiple power meters because your watch is probably not going to pick that up if you're jumping from bike to bike. Is that correct? um the the
1: my wahoo watch does pick them up so if i have if my number one and two bike both have power meters then i will have power for the whole race um do. so there's probably a drop out of what 10 20 seconds as it works out but because the mechanic is holding the bike he's spinning the pedals back to get them ready for you to pick them up it wakes the power meter up and then you ride through pick up the bike and then you're way on it on a new power meter so There are races where I do just ride on one bike, and that one bike has the power meter. Um, It wasn't Worlds, unfortunately. I raced the whole Worlds race on one bike, but I had a very late mechanical problem before the race, and I started on my number three bike, I think it was. Um, I would have loved to have my power meter at Worlds because the normalized power would have just been stupid. You know, like everything at 450 watts, nothing in between. Um, That's what it would have been like for an hour straight, I I think anyway, and that's at like 62, 63 kilos. So it's, yeah, it's big numbers. And the power data that I have recorded and seen is very much that you're either doing zero watts or you're sprinting 400 watts plus. Um, There's not much in between. And there's a reason that we also train kind of like that. We don't really train much in between um, it's pretty much all VO2 max plus, um, to get ready for salt because there's no tempo climbs. There's no, oh, we'll just do thresholds for a bit. It's yeah. You're either sprinting out of the corner or you're freewheeling into the next corner. So it's just so, so polarized in that respect. Do
2: ready you for- find that data to, to be useful or.
1: Uh, no, the power data is not that useful. Like, because, uh, also if there's running in the race, it's massively affected, like As soon as you get off the bike and you're running with your bike you know you're doing 500 watts but with your feet so you're not recording anything like that so your tss doesn't matter all of that like heart rate is kind of interesting sometimes because it might um suggest that you're a bit fatigued like if you do a a full one hour max effort and your heart rate's 10 beats lower than normal you can think your average heart rate like oh i'm obviously getting there but i'm getting a bit fatigued but there's nothing to look at when you're racing um Cause, yeah, if you look down and you're you're doing too many watts, you're not gonna let the wheel go in front of you. You have just gotta do it. So,
0: and I noticed. So last year you get fifth at U twenty three World Championships in the U S. Yep. Then then a year later you get ninth in the in like the senior worlds, the the pro worlds. Like, it, was that the, you think the best result you've had? I mean, as far as like major world championships.
1: Yeah, I think ninth at Worlds was, yeah, it's my best race of my career. Like, or even on a course that didn't suit me the best, even with probably not the best tactics, you know, like from a tactical point of view, being the only GB rider at the front of the race, it did hinder me. And I was still strong enough to, to kind of get a result from that. Um, so, yeah, it was, yeah, one of my best performances. I, I have regrets about the American Worlds. Like, tactically, I wasn't very good Physically, I wasn't on my best level, but I still managed to get a decent result. Um, but it's hard, you know, it's so hard to compare two different races, especially when they're different categories. And um, I don't really look back on those type of things too much because, you know, things move so quickly um, with with racing and things. But um, it's more once you've got a bit of a bank of races, once you've got five results that would suggest a certain level that's really what i think shows the type of rider i am and i think that's what i did last season when i got you know multiple top fives and, and top tens at that level
0: was that travel to the u.s world's pretty tough I, don't, I mean i don't think you're getting like a, a glasgow to arkansas direct flight it uh, no it was uh it
1: was uh the day before travel i was actually in the netherlands and i had to drive to london uh to start that that process and we went London to uh where it was Phoenix and then Phoenix to um a small airport and then to the final airport as well so I think it was it was only three flights but um it's a lot more than British people and Belgian people are used to having to do to travel to a world championships which I add an aspect but
2: and Cameron what was your take on that cyclocross course was it a cyclocross course (laughs)
1: I think it was, it was a very world championships course. Like it was, it had all of the characteristics of a world championships course. And what did make it interesting was that it wasn't Belgian. You know, it didn't have loads of these just dead 180 corners. It didn't have um, the long, it didn't actually have that many long straights. You know, a lot of the time when it started to get into a straight, you'd then do a corner or you'd, you'd meander somewhere like the, the sweeping long descent was something that you would never really see in Belgium. First of all, because it actually wasn't very technical. Um, you couldn't pedal. And then it went into such a hard climb that, that it made it such a hard feature. You know, Riders were getting full recovery down this 20, 30 second descent. But then with that full recovery, you were then punching as hard as you can for 45 seconds. And that didn't suit me actually so well. I think I'm better when I'm using my kick off the back of getting not much recovery Whereas there are riders who are better than me at getting good recovery and then their peak, their absolute power was just, you know, I couldn't really compete with that. So I would end up getting dropped on that really steep bit and then I would claw my way back by just riding everything else faster while they were having to recover from going so deep. Um, But with that, I was actually always on the back foot. I could, ideally, I would do that effort in front of the race, but then I didn't actually have the punch to get any separation. So it was also such a fast course that getting separation was the hard part. You know, getting actually getting riders out of your slipstream and off the wheel was really difficult because you couldn't you know to, to do it on pure watts, you would have had to, you know, say we're kicking up this climb at eight at nine hundred, a thousand watts. You'd have to be doing two hundred watts even more than that just to get separation. Because we were the punch we were doing it was like eight ten percent but because we were so fresh into it we were climbing at like 25 30 k's an hour and still then there was such a massive draft um so the way you saw actually pidcock get separation was through corners it was through pushing on little transitions it was just eking out those little gaps and that's how you would ideally get separation on a course that fast
2: Yeah, I've been to Benville and I've ridden down there a few times. I haven't actually been to that course, which Mm. I I think is maybe 20 minutes away. If Stuart and Tom Walton are listening and they'd like for Spencer and I to come down and personally examine the course, we'd be happy to do that. We are considering a Benville appearance later in the year for a live podcast. But Cameron, the impression I got watching the streaming was, to me, it looked like a short track mountain bike course almost with like – a road descent in the middle of it as you mentioned then this power climb and then it had these cartoony like amusement park impersonations of belgian cyclocross features on the top half of the course that's kind of was my take
1: it was it was it had all of the aspects of a great course but it didn't have that one extra thing you know it didn't have that one physical feature that went into a technical feature that was really going to make the difference and you know it's definitely not a bad thing. I think almost, I think whatever it was, four out of, sorry, yeah, four out of six races finished in a sprint finish, which, uh, actually no, my race didn't, but it had sprint finishes for the podium. Um, just because with the speeds being so high, you could get so much draft and the tactics of actually, yeah, getting any any distance were so hard. So, I think it's great for the sport having having courses that are so different because we get so in our, in our, in a rut, in our, comfort zone of, uh, you know, we're going to go to this course and it's going to be just heavy and physical and that type of thing. But then we turn up for world championships, the biggest race of the year. And we hadn't really done a race in that kind of style. And that's, that's, a that's a good thing for the sport.
2: I don't know. I personally, I really gravitate towards <laughs> those Belgian courses where they have, I don't know, like piles of concrete sacks and heavy construction equipment. And then you have the, the Willie Nassen, signs the pals sauces like that's what really gets me going yeah there's a
1: nostalgia to that you can you can have that for the rest of your season i guess
2: yeah no you're right i i digress but you mentioned this idea of these moments when you can create separation on the course and i'm wondering because the part that we don't see on tv is like what's the mental battle when you're mind effing your competitors out there and i'm sure almost all of it is having the physical ability, but is there something mental going on and psychological between the competitors where you're breaking someone off?
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends on what part of the course and everything and what's come before. Like there's quite a lot of a context to it, you know? Like you can, if you're really switched on the race, you can see the moves coming in a course like that, you know? So say someone's let the wheel go through a technical section and it's on them to shut the wheel back down They've just done a big effort and with that you know then you can start to think about how how do we catch people off guard but um with the world's course the equalizer was that downhill because no matter how good or bad you were technically everyone could recover on that downhill and then go really deep into it where i was making the moves were like later on in the course where there was multiple hard physical sections that would wear riders down and then there would be a key technical section where i could ride you know, perfect, hopefully, like very clean and just take advantage of one small mistake. And if you can do that multiple times in a race, that's when I would start to kind of see gaps going. Uh, But it was never quite enough of a gap. You know, there was a whittling down process where it was just three of us that were in with a shout of the medal. Um, But then it just came down to a sprint. And uh, I led out the sprint because that's what someone who's not tactically aware would do, would lead out the sprint in in, uh, Fayetteville.
0: Did you, I, I think uh, like someone I knew was flying back to New York after the race and Tom Pitcock was on their flight in economy, man yeah. of the people, by the way, going, and Doug, uh, did you do any vacation in the U S after the race? or you just go straight back to the UK.
1: Um, I, the good thing was I raced on Saturday. So it meant I, on, I got to watch the race on Sunday, which was awesome. Uh, just watching, you know, I'm a massive fan of sport. If anyway, like, even if I wasn't racing, I would just. It was just amazing to be there, you know, watching Tom do what he did, watching uh, Mariana Boss, all these amazing athletes. Like, I just love that. So that was, like, part of my holiday a little bit. And then we all went out as British Cycling, as Team GB. We all went out uh, for a nice meal on the Sunday evening with Tom and, uh, yeah, enjoyed that. But then, no, it was just home, back to, back to reality, uh, recover from a j- bit of jet lag and then have a little bit of an off-season, go ride with friends. Like, that's always... What I miss when I'm in Belgium, I miss my mountain bike because the mountain biking in Belgium is, is pretty non-existent. Um, and I also miss my riding buddies. So when I go home, I ride my mountain bike with my friends. And it's the perfect way to get back and get grounded.
2: And
0: we were discussing this in the, pre, in the pre-show. I just want you to touch on this again. So you were saying that there's like a wide variance of breakfast in pro cycling. Some, some people are maybe more into the savory protein yeah. heavy you're into the the porridge and the, and the flap flat jacks flapjacks, jacks whatever we're calling yeah. them Did, like do you have you talked to tom at all since he's been on Ineos? like are they really restricting like do you think you know in two years when when after andrew and i convinced Ineos to sign you and you're on like a five million pound a year deal <laughs> like are you gonna have to change up your, your porridge heavy diet or are you just gonna stay true to yourself and kind of eat what you think's been working for you
1: I think that at the top level, it goes backwards to really to what works for each individual athlete. You know, like by the time most riders have made it to World Tour, they've been exposed to every type of breakfast, every type of bit of research, every type of data, every type of nutritionist. And once they have made it to that level, you know, there's a reason why they're eating the things they're eating, Um, and they're really you can't question much of that. at a more development level, that's when riders can be a bit more open to different kind of suggestions and different like structures and routines. Uh, but by the time riders make it to, to kind of high level world tour, they, they already know they already know their things pretty well. I think the the differences are then made just even in the next smaller level of nutrition, the maybe the snacking and the on the bike and all of that. But the the macro stuff, not the micro, the macro is pretty much taking care of itself by that point. I think.
2: And Cameron, are you doing any fasted training or is that Uh, totally out of vogue now?
1: No, I mean, I'm very much on the high carb, high calorie, you know, like where I am as a bike racer, there's not that many gains to be had from restricting any of that. So um, I think, yeah, in a different part of my career and if I I was in a different part of the sport, then there'd be something for that. But with how high intensity my training is and how high intensity my racing is and also the fact that I'm a little bit younger there's there wouldn't be much benefits to to restricting any of that but there's i totally see a place in the cycling world for it in in other kind of applications
2: definitely a higher level of interest than ever before this year in the cape epic probably because of the level of talent that is now participating and of course it's always had an incredibly high level of talent on the mountain bike side but we've seen a number of crossovers and i'm wondering if um rising gravel star alejandro valverde actually might be there next year but what uh, what was your experience like and can you talk about the relative difficulty of that event compared to other things that you've done
1: i mean from a human point of view it's like the hardest thing a human can ever do on a bike like it's i think it's really really a level above uh, above things like I would like to talk to someone like Vincenzo Nibali did the Cape Epic this year. Uh, I'd like to hear his direct comparison between kind of Tour de France and Cape Epic. Uh, I definitely know from from Chris from Chris Blevins that he's had pretty high level experience of of uh road stage racing, and he says Cape Epic is is nowhere near in the same level. You know, Cape Epic is so much harder. Um, and I think it comes down to there's there's a full body uh like aspect. Like it's so heavy on the full body every single day. The roughness of the terrain and the 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 full and the mental side of it as well. You know, it's not nothing smooth sailing. Um, you know, you're gonna get onto a fire road, you're gonna get onto a gravel track, and that's gonna be when you've got to recover. Meanwhile it could be crosswinds, meanwhile your bike might not be working very well, meanwhile you've got no one around you to draft. There's just there are quite a lot more factors involved with with getting to the finish every day than there are on road and the amount that a rider can learn about themselves just in that one week of racing is huge and i'm very grateful for my opportunity to do it and i would like to go back and do it again because the difference i think between doing it well, once i've done it my second time i'll know but i think the difference in doing it once and twice is is really big um being a being a noob and being a novice to then just having one in the bank would be massive um, because there are just so many things I would do differently around fueling, around pace management, around how in tune with your teammate you have to be as well. Um, and yeah, I'd love to catch up with, with Chris, for example, who won the Cape Epic this year with Matt Beers. Um, and just because he won it on his second attempt this year. Um, I'd love to hear how how, how, he, how he kind of got on with that. But I think the common theme is just never giving up in the Cape Epic. It's, it's a race where things swing so quickly um like with all parts of cycling just to like never give up and and all of that but with a week long stage race where so many things can go wrong um there's also an opportunity for lots of things to go right and things to go in your direction so um you saw that in this year's cape epic with teams having different kind of combinations of illness and and uh, mechanicals that it really it was not over until everyone crossed the line on the last day
2: and almost all amateurs are staying in a tent city during yeah. that race. It's like I can't imagine sleeping on the ground around hundreds of other people and eating dining hall style food and doing oh, that mean, for the, a week.
1: The amateur side of it is a whole nother level of insanity. Like what we do, you know, we're full professionals. We've got for every one rider, there are two or three support staff. So the workforce is huge, you know, everyone is staying in camper vans or in separate accommodation. There are like at least, there's at least one mechanic per rider. I think or one mechanic per, because the bikes, you know, they're getting absolutely wrecked every single day. There's carers, there's team managers, there's chefs. The food, the feeding and the recovery aspect is, I found that really, like, really intense. You know, you finish the bike race, you've maybe done a really good job, and it's just as drilled and just as, um, high energy to be on with your recovery as it was just doing the bike race you know you're getting handed drinks you're getting handed food you know you're getting on massage tables you're working through little injuries it's just this constant thing and then you know you're winding down a little bit as you get to bed but then you're getting to bed as early as possible because the the alarm is set for 5 a.m the next day because it's 7 a.m starts every day Um, and it's to then think about all that stuff that i've just talked about and then to think that you're as an amateur, you're on the bike for like one hour or two hours more every day because it takes you that bit longer to finish the stage and then you're getting none of that extra support. It's just, it's crazy. So um, we we got to hand out medals. The pro teams got to hand out some of the finishers' medals at the end of the last stage last year. And it was great just hearing riders who, you know, they're working through it for these amazing causes, these different charities, or just for their personal reasons. And that, that I find that incredibly inspiring. You know, we're there from a performance side of things, trying to win or trying to, you know, do better than we did there before. Meanwhile, they're just on this survival mission, which is super, super impressive and inspiring.
0: Well, Cameron, we don't want to take up too much of your time, but before you leave, can you tell us like, just say in three years time, it like in your dream scenario, like what are you doing and what's your race balance look like uh, amongst the disciplines?
1: As long as I'm winning, the highest level of bike racing i'll be happy so whether that's saddle cross, gravel road or mountain bike i'm pretty happy so i want to be doing one of them really well and i do think i'll need something else to kind of support that and to to complement that i think that is a, a setup that will work for me so whether that's you know winning high level cyclocross races with a bit of road and mountain bike on the side then i'll be pretty happy
2: I have to ask a follow-up. Have you considered coming to the US and having a go at the now kind of monuments of gravel over here?
1: It's it's been on the cards. I think with the right time, right place, you know, it's it's not very far away. It wouldn't take many people and things to, to come into place. It's just finding the time and finding the right um right place and timing in my season and then it can happen. Um I think US Cyclocross will probably happen first for me, before it happens with gravel. Um, but you know, it's it's only a matter of time. It's not if, it's just when.
0: Sweet. And where where can people find you? And then what's your next big race? What would you, what would you watch out for? Um. So
1: next racing is the gravel world series. Actually, I'm doing the first round of the gravel world series in Spain uh, towards the end of April. And then through May, I get into the mountain bike World Cup season. Um, So through May, June, July, it's just balancing gravel World Cups and mountain bike World Cups. And then when we get into August, it's World Champs time. So that's the the main goal of my summer season. And you can find me on Instagram, Cameroonie.mason. And then just everything else, Cameron Mason. I should
0: come up if you search that. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. It was great to talk to you.
2: Yeah. Thanks for being here, Cameron. And... I, gosh now i'm thinking we might need you to come back on to have a report from inside the gravel world series which we have not had yet you yeah. got to come back we want to hear about what the race is like
1: yeah right, cool i'm sure there's loads of tech and stuff and uh racing tactics we can chat about then so I'm happy to come back on again
2: awesome thanks for being here cheers thanks